On August 28, 1963, at the March on Washington, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. took the podium, and during his speech in front of a quarter million people, he said this, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, end quote. wrote a short blog post about a year ago about Martin Luther King Jr. And in it, I relayed my experiences teaching about civil rights and Dr. King to my political science intro courses. I would seek to challenge my students on the understanding of both him and the civil rights movement by sharing with them lesser known passages from his speeches and books. Students were often surprised about this side of Martin Luther King Jr., that isn't often quoted on TV or in other forms of media or even the textbook they were reading from for the course. It was also fascinating to hear and read the responses to the information that was new to most of them. Probably the craziest one was when a more conservative white student said that Dr. King would change his mind about his more radical viewpoints since we live in a different world than the world of the 1960s. This was probably less than 10 years ago. This response always interested me, always fascinated me. The idea that the student was so committed to his view of Martin Luther King Jr. that there was no room in his mind for the real Dr. King. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. February is Black History Month, and undoubtedly the most well-known icon in African-American history is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who would have been 90 years old this year. Dr. King was a Baptist minister and activist who helped to lead a movement to achieve racial equality in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s. He came to national prominence during the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. The boycott that began in response to the arrest of civil rights activist Rosa Parks for refusing to give up her seat on the bus to a white man. Now, just a quick aside, what a lot of people may not be aware of is that Rosa Parks was not the first black bus rider to refuse the command to give up her seat on the segregated buses in Montgomery to white riders. Prior to Parks' arrest, there were a number of women and girls who had done the same thing. Just months before Rosa Parks, a 15-year-old girl named Claudette Colvin was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white woman. But civil rights leaders centered the boycott around Parks instead of Colvin because of Parks' work in the civil rights movement and that she presented as a respectable middle-class woman as opposed to Colvin, who was a poor teenage girl who was unmarried and pregnant at the time. In any case, Dr. King helped to lead the boycott and in the process became the face of America's civil rights movement. He was also known for his I Have a Dream speech, 
which was given in 1963 at the National Mall in Washington, D.C., where he illustrated a peaceful, integrated future to the American people. He continued to be a major figure in the movement until his assassination on April 5, 1968. Today, Dr. King's birthday is observed nationwide on the third Monday in January. His name is now invoked by people on the left, the right, and in between as a well-respected figure of history with wise words and deeds we can follow. But has Dr. King's memory and our understanding of the world he lived in been whitewashed? This is going to be a two-part series. In the first of these two episodes, I want to discuss some widely held beliefs about Martin Luther King Jr. and discuss how much of what is common knowledge is true and how much is fiction. In a second episode that will be released in two weeks, I'll compare and contrast the world of the 1960s with today's reality and explore how the Dr. King of the 1950s and 60s was transformed into the malleable, everything-to-everyone Dr. King of today. For this episode, to be honest, it was a bit difficult to narrow down the beliefs to talk about. There are others that are sprinkled throughout other episodes, such as the myth of Dr. King being pro-life, which I debunk in the second abortion episode, which was episode 22, that happened to come out around this time last year. Today, I'm going to start with a belief that is most pervasive in our society regarding Dr. King and is also the most untrue. Martin Luther King Jr. Promoted Colorblindness Because of the I Have a Dream speech, particularly the section that speaks to the content of our character, Dr. King is often viewed as someone whose dream was of ushering in a colorblind future. The right wing has taken hold of this narrative. For example, black conservative economist Shelby Steele wrote a book called Content of Our Character, which blamed black doubt in liberal social policies rather than white racism for racial disparities. Dinesh D'Souza, conservative pundit and pardon crook, has said, quote, consistent with Martin Luther King's vision, the government should stop color-coding its citizens, end quote. Jennifer Gratz, the lead plaintiff in one of the University of Michigan anti-affirmative action cases, wrote an article in Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller, aptly titled, The Left Doesn't Believe in Dr. King's Colorblind Dream. She wrote, quote, Tragically, King's dream was hijacked by a growing movement that demanded race be part of almost every government decision. This race industry hides behind terms like diversity and equality to advocate policies that perpetuate a cycle of racial stereotyping, victimization, and government discrimination. End quote. We're often told that to honor Martin Luther King's dream, we shouldn't focus on race. Any mention of race is playing the race card, race baiting, and dishonors Dr. King's memory. But this interpretation is a gross misunderstanding of King's message. Martin Luther King Jr. was not Booker T. Washington. Dr. King did not subscribe to bootstrap theory. In his speech, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, he had this to say, quote, now there is another myth that still gets around. 
it is a kind of over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. There are those who still feel that if the Negro is to rise out of poverty, if the Negro is to rise out of the slum conditions, if he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. They never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stop to realize the debt that they owe a people who were kept in slavery 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln, but he was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. And the irony of it all is that at the same time the nation failed to do anything for the black man, though an act of Congress was giving away millions of acres of land in the West, in the Midwest which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, it provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, as the years unfolded, it provided low interest rates so that they could mechanize their farms. And to this day, Thousands of these very persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. And these are so often the very people who tell Negroes that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. It's alright to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. We must come to see that the roots of racism are very deep in this country, and there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all the effects of racism and the tragedies of racial injustice." End quote. Martin Luther King Jr. supported positive steps to place Black Americans on an equal playing field, known today as race-based affirmative action. He even explicitly supported reparations, which is highly controversial even among progressive-minded white Americans, and even discussed a dollar amount in a Playboy interview with author Alex Haley in 1965. Just weeks before his death, he said this, quote, Now, this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check, end quote. Claiming Dr. King was colorblind does not stand up to any semblance of reality. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were rivals, or on opposite sides. During the era of the Civil Rights Movement, there were many voices in that space that advocated for different approaches to racial segregation and discrimination. Martin Luther King Jr., as head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, promoted civil disobedience, the breaking of unjust law while accepting the punishment, as well as the doctrine of nonviolence adopted by Indian leader Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi. But there were other individuals and groups as well. 
The NAACP had approached the civil rights fight by focusing on legal avenues to obtain equal rights. There was also the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. SNCC was organized by SCLC activist Ella Baker, originally an offshoot of SCLC, and started out focusing on civil disobedience, including the freedom rides and sit-ins to integrate the South, as well as black voter registration, with a spirit of interracial cooperation and integration. But by the mid-1960s, SNCC, now under the leadership of Stokely Carmichael, began to move away from a nonviolent integrationist message, expelling white members and espousing a message of black revolution, focusing more on uplifting black people in the ghettos of the North. Then there were groups such as the Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam. The Black Panther Party, started by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, were similar to later SNCC and almost formed an alliance with them. The Black Panthers focused on black pride, racial uplift, and community self-sufficiency, but also focused on black militancy, particularly protecting the black community from rampant police brutality. Other well-known members of the Black Panther Party included Afeni Shakur, mother of Tupac, and Angela Davis. The Nation of Islam is a sect of Islam that is not recognized by most mainstream Islamic movements. The Nation of Islam merges the Quran and Muslim beliefs with a doctrine of black supremacy and anti-white views. The way it manifested itself in the 1960s was through a message of black militancy, black self-sufficiency, black pride, similar to the Black Panthers, but with a religious message behind it. Malcolm X, who was born Malcolm Little, was the spokesman of the Nation of Islam during the early 1960s and eloquently shared the message of the Nation of Islam on a public stage. He vocally opposed individuals and groups that took an integrationist approach to civil rights, including Martin Luther King Jr. and LCLC. So when we learn in school or through media that Dr. King and Malcolm X were on opposite sides or were rivals, there's some truth to that, but it's also a little more complicated. After conflict with the head of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X struck out on his own and started his own sect, also at the time dedicated to black nationalism. Then, in April of 1964, Malcolm X went on a Hajj, or Muslim pilgrimage, to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. This pilgrimage exposed him to Muslims of different races treating each other equally and without prejudice, and he got a taste of Islam free from racist beliefs. He brought this with him when he came back to the States, and from then until his assassination in 1965, Malcolm X, now El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, preached the message that Islam was the pathway to peace. Meanwhile, Martin Luther King Jr., while still dedicated to nonviolence, had started to become disenchanted with the pace of change the civil rights movement had affected. The two met only once, on March 26, 1964. Both attended Senate debate on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. By the time they met, it was much like two ships passing in the night. Malcolm X's philosophy was becoming more integrationist and cooperative, and he was more willing to work with other organizations, which is one of the reasons why he was at odds with Elijah Muhammad. At one point, he even wanted to work with Dr. King himself, but King refused and this did not come to fruition. For Dr. King's part, 
while not abandoning nonviolence. He was becoming more pointed in his criticism and wasn't afraid to point to black nationalism and militancy as a logical consequence of segregation and racial discrimination against black Americans. And on Malcolm X's part, his attacks may have been intentional, as Malcolm X was said to have spoken to Dr. King's wife, Coretta, and said that by attacking King publicly, his intent was for white people to be more willing to hear King. When Malcolm X was killed, Dr. King sent a telegram to Malcolm X's wife, Betty Shabazz, which read in part, quote, While we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt that he had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and root of the problem, end quote. So while Dr. King and Malcolm X weren't friends, the two leaders grew to have a degree of respect for one another. They may have even worked together publicly at some point had Malcolm X not been murdered. Sadly, we'll never know. Racial discrimination was only a problem in the American South. So just a bit ago, I talked about the various civil rights and black liberation groups that existed in the 1960s. This list is by no means exhaustive, and it doesn't address black people such as prominent black entrepreneur Samuel B. Fuller, who supported the segregationist status quo and stated that blacks themselves were at fault for their own place in society, even in the face of actual real-life laws that were dividing whites and blacks, enacted by people that blacks, at least in the South, couldn't even vote for or against. Yes, the Shelby Steeles and Candace Owenses of the world have predecessors. But the reason why so many groups existed with different aims had a lot to do with where their mission was concentrated. Racial discrimination and segregation were pretty much everywhere in the United States during this time. It was not unique at all to the South. Blacks all over the U.S. struggled with employment discrimination, unequal access to quality education, and restricted access to loans for building their own businesses or purchasing their own homes. Those issues weren't unique to one part of the country, but other issues were more regional in scope. The South, due to the legacy of slavery, tended to have blacks and whites living in pretty close proximity to each other, so the racial order was enforced through Jim Crow segregation. Separate schools, separate facilities, separate public restrooms, public places such as parks, pools, and libraries were designated whites only, and private businesses open to the public, such as theaters, restaurants, hotels, were either segregated or simply not open to blacks. This was a way to keep blacks and whites separate, even though in their daily lives, they would end up working and living alongside each other. The higher population of blacks in the South compared to the North also meant that if they were given the same rights as whites, there would be a greater threat to the established white political order. So preserving the white racial order meant keeping black people from the ballot box. In the North and out West, segregation was primarily enforced through housing, though there were some pockets of Jim Crow out West. While in general the Jim Crow laws weren't on the books in the North, blacks and whites were steered to different neighborhoods, especially during the Great Migration, which saw an influx of black people moving from the South to Northern and West Coast cities. 
Black neighborhoods tended to be small with concentrated populations with inferior housing owned by slumlords. And racial covenants and redlining were used to keep Black people from buying homes in white neighborhoods. While whites-only businesses and private organizations did exist in the North, Jim Crow segregation was not a systematic policy there. The segregated neighborhoods were pretty effective in keeping whites and blacks separate without needing to resort to additional policies to keep the races apart. If you'd like to learn more about Northern segregation, check out episode 26, which is the second part of my two-parter focusing mostly on my hometown of Detroit. In the North, small concentrated pockets of black populations and concentrated slums meant they were often targets for targeted policing, including racial profiling and police brutality. These communities were also targets for destruction of their communities through urban renewal projects. So if a new freeway, stadium, or development was being proposed, black neighborhoods were often in the sights of urban planners. And when you think of environmental racism, think Flint, Michigan, or East Chicago, Indiana, Industrial plants, incinerators, landfills often found homes in black communities because white neighborhoods with greater numbers and more political power wanted the benefit of these businesses and public utilities, but didn't want them in their backyards. The different approaches of these civil rights and black liberation organizations were an outgrowth of the challenges faced by black Americans in these different regions of the country. In the South, abolishing the system of Jim Crow segregation and black disenfranchisement was the focus, which tended to lend itself to demonstrations of public resistance to Jim Crow, such as sit-ins, freedom rides, and voter registration drives. These were nonviolent tactics of integration-focused civil rights groups, which were also connected to Christian churches and their leaders. The church was, and still is, considered a major cultural institution for both blacks and whites in the South. So the church undoubtedly had a moderating influence. In the North, there was no Jim Crow, but many Black people in these communities were tired of being targeted and dumped on by a white majority, and without de jure segregation policies that explicitly targeted them, it left few options for Northern Blacks to fight unfair treatment through legal channels, such as courts or legislative action. Also, without Jim Crow, there are few opportunities for nonviolent civil disobedience. Groups operating in the North were more willing to leave violent action on the table because of this, especially when attempting to combat issues such as police brutality and a law and order focused white society. Segregated living patterns and resulting ghettoization also led to a greater focus on community self sufficiency, black pride, and black power as opposed to a goal of racial integration. So it was no coincidence that the more militant, confrontational civil rights and black liberation groups were typically found in the North. This regional difference is best illustrated by SNCC, which started the decade of the 1960s as an integrationist, nonviolent group and ended it as a militant black power group. Besides the change in leadership, what also changed is that the group started out focusing on Southern racism, but later focused on the North. Martin Luther King Jr. only focused on racial discrimination. We tend to think about Martin Luther King Jr. within the framework of Black equality, but he worked with other groups as well, such as Native Americans and Mexican Americans. Also, 
While Dr. King's work to advance racial equality is what he is most remembered for, this understanding of Dr. King is incomplete. Throughout his adult life, he was a strident critic of capitalism. He wrote in a 1952 letter to his wife, Coretta Scott King, quote, I imagine you already know that I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic. Capitalism started out with a noble and high motive, but like most human systems, it fell victim to the very thing it was revolting against. So today, capitalism has outlived its usefulness, end quote. In a report to the SCLC, King stated, quote, we must recognize that we can't solve our problem now until there is a radical redistribution of economic and political power. This means a revolution of values and other things. We must see now that the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together. You can't really get rid of one without getting rid of the others. The whole structure of American life must be changed. America is a hypocritical nation, and we must put our own house in order, end quote. Dr. King saw racism as not just an issue in and of itself, but essentially as part of a triumvirate of evil. He said this in a 1967 speech, quote, We must see now that the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together, and you can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other. Jesus confronted this problem of the interrelatedness of evil one day, or rather it was one night. A big shot came to him, and he asked Jesus a question, what shall I do to be saved? Jesus didn't get bogged down in a specific evil. He looked at Nicodemus, and he didn't say, now Nicodemus, you must not drink liquor. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must not commit adultery. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must not lie. He didn't say, Nicodemus, you must not steal. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, the whole structure of your life must be changed. Now, this is what we're dealing with in America. Somebody must say to America, America, if you have contempt for life, if you exploit human beings by seeing them as less than human, if you will treat human beings as a means to an end, you thingify those human beings. And if you will thingify persons, you will exploit them economically. And if you will exploit persons economically, you will abuse your military power to protect your economic investments and your economic exploitations. So what America must be told today is that she must be born again. The whole structure of American life must be changed, end quote. To that end, Dr. King came out against the Vietnam War during this time as he considered it the wanton execution of human beings overseas by other human beings, primarily the poor, who were being exploited to advance the economic interests of America's elites. His stance on Vietnam placed him at odds with the presidential administration of Lyndon B. Johnson, who he had previously been aligned with. Here is an excerpt of a speech given by Dr. King on the Vietnam War in 1967. Quote, I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor. 
So long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. And so we had been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government." End quote. King also talked about the idea of a poor people's campaign. The poor people's campaign was developed and then implemented by SCLC beginning in late 1967 to address unemployment and exploitation of labor, housing shortages for people in poverty, and the overall impact of poverty in the U.S. This campaign was not focused on simply addressing these issues for Black Americans or even all people of color, but for all poor Americans, including white Americans living in poverty. At the time King was assassinated, SCLC was working on a nationwide march on Washington to pressure Congress to address employment and housing issues. This would have been complete with a tent city so that protests could be sustained and would last as long as necessary until their goals were met. While the planned march did take place after King's death, unfortunately, his death negatively affected the campaign and SCLC's leadership as a whole, which made this not so effective. Nowadays, the Poor People's Campaign is a mere footnote in the recounted life and legacy of Dr. King. Next time, how did Dr. King go from a communist sympathizer and outside agitator to a colorblind, unifying visionary whose message can be molded like Plato to fit any political agenda? It's great to go back in time to explore the works of yesteryear. Zach and Elle have turned the clock back in the latest from short, colorful, and loud. Our dynamic duo roll back to the 1980s as they react to the 1984 obscure animated film Galavance. It's a fun episode about a movie that has nothing written about it. So be sure to check that out at shortcolorfulloud.lipson.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcatchers. And for all of our great content on the Flying Machine Network, including all of our shows and our blogs, go to flyingmachine.network. As always, thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download, and the links are listed right there. If you subscribe, you get new episodes once they come out. No waiting. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. 
and check out the show on Instagram, instagram.com slash Podcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.